going on guys welcome back to the fieldcraft survival podcast um i'm gonna be knocking out your ads for you today this is austin and i'm sitting down with my buddy kevin estella what's going on kevin what's going on austin um just got back from a little search and rescue call uh, it was interesting we were sitting here talking to our buddy um mike who's on the wasatch county sheriff's department and then a call came out and so he and i both had to scramble so um but I'm back now so I can record these ads for you guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so kick it off with our sponsors. Our first one is Triarch Systems and they're one of our original sponsors from the, for the podcast. And, and really they've just been supporting the company as a whole for a long time. Um, great, great weapon systems that they're building there and great people as well. Yeah, we actually, uh, we're picking up Caitlin Lowe's tomorrow. I know she does a lot of shooting with, uh, with the uh, Triarch 6.5 rifle and I've wanted to get my hands on a Tri-11 for a long time. I've seen the work that they've done to Glock pistols and you know people say Glock perfection but there is room for improvement and the guys at Triarch have definitely figured out where to find that improvement. Yeah those guys have dialed it in. Um, they really have. I mean I, when I was running around going to training courses with Raul that's what he used and uh, I know Mike I've done a couple of videos of, with Mike of him using the uh, Tri-11 and that thing is like a machine like a well-oiled machine and it's it's amazing so yeah so what do they need to do to uh get some money off of that so yeah if you go on to triarchsystems.com and use code fieldcraft that will save you five percent off your next purchase or build that you decide that you want to do with triarch so again that's triarchsystems.com check them out and next up is one of kevin's personal favorites uh our friends over at kafaru yeah, so Kafaru is a company that has roots in backpack hunting. And for a while, they were making packs for the military. I've been using their gear uh, since 2005, 2006 uh, in, you know, all, or I should say, all over the United States, all over the world as a survival instructor with the Wilderness Learning Center, my company, and now Fieldcraft Survival. We actually just booked a trip to go uh, on a backpack fishing trip with Aaron Snyder from Kafaru. Uh, let's just put it this way. They make the best impacts around. Um, their backpacks are all serviced at their, their factory in Colorado. And their packs that are coming in that before the Kafaru name, when it was under another brand, these packs are still coming in like 20 years later. So people are holding on to them. Yeah. Uh, these packs will potentially outlive you. Yeah. Uh, so please visit their website. Uh, I believe it's kafaru.net. Yep. Um, and you guys can go check out, see what they have. I recommend everyone that's listening, get a Whoopi. You will not be sorry. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome gear. And, and again, great people, man. Like that's one of my favorite parts of working for this company. And a lot of the companies that we do things with, they're just good people, you know? And, uh, and like you said, I'm really excited for that trip with Aaron, man. That's going to be awesome. Uh, and next up is hardhead veterans. So I, I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with Hardhead Veterans and they're a veteran owned company and almost all the people on staff there are veterans as well. And they do a great job at building ballistic rated helmets that are uh, NIJ level 3A rated. Um, and I mean, and, and what a lot of people don't know is that it'll actually stop 556, 762x39. It's just a great piece of equipment. And when you're talking about something that is potentially really heavy, that every um, law enforcement officer, SWAT operator, uh, military guy is wearing, you know, for a long period of time, 
you got to do it right. And those are things that are weighing in just under three pounds. And they've been doing this right. And they've been doing it right for a long time. And they're pretty easy to uh, accessorize with Peltors and, and IR lights and things like that, right? Absolutely. They've they've got a great system and, uh, you know, using the rail systems that they have. And they also have like a 10-year warranty on all their gear, uh, free exchanges and returns. Um, and it it's hard to beat a company that'll kind of provide you with those types of services and customer service. So um, you can head over to hardheadveterans.com and you can use code fieldcraft and I'll save you 15 bucks on your next purchase over there. And uh, so today's podcast, you sat down with the legendary Jack Carr, um, author, Navy SEAL, former Navy SEAL, uh, great dude, man. He's he's a good person. Yeah, Toyota Land Cruiser enthusiast, yeah. uh, old school survival junkie. Love the stuff from the '80s and the '90s. Uh, we we definitely geeked out on that. We talked about the upcoming TV show that he has coming out with Chris Pratt and who he would want to be casted uh, cast as certain uh, characters. I mean, really, just like a fun conversation. I mean, we could have gone on and on and on, and we probably will get him in here another time to do another <laughs> oh, yeah. one about other topics. Um, so it was kind of cool to to see a guy who has achieved so much and has done so much, and he's you know as popular as he is, totally just down to earth dude. Like honestly, yeah. like he's not a celebrity that you know will put his nose up and and kind of mm. look the other way. Like he seriously wants to talk to you about you and. And we had a great conversation. Yeah. So I hope the, the listeners enjoy this one. Yeah, and we did a couple of videos that are gonna be coming out on YouTube, I believe tomorrow, where we talked about some survival items and did a walk around of his Land Cruiser. And man, it was funny to see him in the store because he geeks out on all the same stuff that we geek out on, so. Yeah, and his Land Cruiser has a Corvette engine in it, yeah. which it's it's totally unfair, but it's freaking awesome. Because so. America. You yeah, know? America. So, all right, guys. Well, without further ado, Kevin Estella and our friend, Jack Carr. Hey guys, this is Kevin Estella with Fieldcraft Survival, and you're in for a treat today if you are into all things survival, into things uh, survival fiction, 80s trivia, vehicles, badass Toyota vehicles, you're in for a treat because today we are joined by none other than Jack Carr. Jack, what's up? What's up, man? This is awesome. We're at the Fieldcraft Survival, the world headquarters of Fieldcraft Survival and uh, in Heber, uh, Utah. And this is just over the hill from me. And I'm so impressed. Like this place, I, I guess I didn't really know what to expect, but I didn't expect it to be this cool. This yeah, is awesome. We're your neighbors now. So if uh, we happen to come on over and, and you know raid your fridge or anything like that, just don't worry. It's just the Fieldcraft guys. Um, but come I'll- on over, man. We are our house. <laughs> we have uh, all sorts of wild game in that, uh, in that freezer. And I need to make some room because this uh, this fall of a moose hunt coming up. So I need to make some room in there for for a moose or at least part of one. Usually give the guides and and uh, the, the processor some up there in Alaska. Have about a third sent down here, but uh, we'll do we'll do a moose cookout. So you're you're doing an Alaskan moose hunt? Yep, yep on the books for September. So that'll Beautiful. be pretty cool. So I did one a few years ago, and uh, just an amazing experience going to a different area this time. Um, but yeah, just love getting out and getting away and being able to step away from the electronic leash um, and. I'm not bringing the kids on this one, but that's one thing I love about getting outside, uh, whether it's hunting or dropping down to a river canyon on a river trip or something. A lot of these places, there's no cell service. So you don't even have the option of glancing at that phone and telling the kids, oh, hold on one second, I need to check this. So it's, uh, I really like uh, getting outside uh, one 
for me because I grew up doing that, but to uh, to get the kids away from those electronic games and everything else. Now, what part of Alaska are you going to? So this is in the Wrangles, the Wrangell okay. Mountains, and uh, that's about all I know. But I have a friend that's gone there a bunch of different times and just absolutely loves the area, loves the people he goes with. So, uh, so we're going to go up there together. Yeah, I was going to talk about this later. Um, we're actually headed up to Alaska in August, uh, and it's got a connection to one of your books. Ooh. So I just wrapped up. I read your books out of order. I read Terminal List. I read Savage Son. Then I went back to True Believer, which, you know, it, it kind of was a spoiler. Like I, I read Savage Son, and I kind of knew what was going to happen in, in, yeah, yeah. in True Believer. But there, I, I think, and as much as I hate to admit it because I'm a huge Savage Son fan, I think True Believer was my favorite out of the, out of the trilogy. Um, but it was interesting because you brought up something in that book at the very end. And, and I drove across country and I listened to it. And I was like, oh, my God, he, he just mentioned this. So the Alaskan connection has a connection to you where we're going. Uh, Austin, uh, Julian, and myself, we're going to the Silver Tip Lodge in Kenai. Oh, nice. Silver Tip Lodge is run by the family of Bradley Kavner. Wow. And in your book, I don't want to give anything away for yeah. those who need to read the book, but wow. Bradley Kavner's family runs a Silvertip Lodge. Great, great uh, lodge in the Kenai uh, Peninsula. And the first time I heard his name was from Dan Luna, who was friends with, with Bradley. And he's like, you got to go up to Alaska to Silvertip Lodge, go fishing with these guys. And then when I heard Brad Kavner in your book uh -huh. in, the, in the toast, that toast is actually up there. No way. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an incredible quote, and uh, uh, I want to make sure I got it right. So I had, and I wanted to make sure I asked the family first. I didn't want to just take it. So uh, one of my dear friends um, who does the half face blades, Andrew Arabito, yeah. um, they were they were good friends, and so uh, so I, I asked him, and he asked the family uh, if it was okay, and the family said, yeah, be, you know, you know, they put, absolutely put it in there. So so I put it in there, but uh, just a very, I mean, it, it, it's Powerful. now so connected to the to the SEAL team. So it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. I'm gonna have to go up there too. And, yeah, uh, check out check out the lodge and see the see the quote and uh, amazing. And actually, Andy's knives, Andy Arabito's knives are up there. Nice. Um, so there's a, a fillet knife, and a lot of people like when they go. If you ever go with an outfitter, you'll often find like an outfitter has like just cheap knives kicking around that have been sharpened a thousand times, and they look like ice picks, but they still manage to have an edge on them because they've just been sharpened over and over. Well, I don't think a lot of people realize the quality of the knife that they're using when it's a half-ass, uh, yeah. half-face blade up there. Um, and oh my gosh. Uh, I saw one of his knives that he made for my friend's son, uh, Dan's son, and uh, it was made out of Dan's uh, uniform that he wore overseas, mm -hmm. and he made Micarta out of it. Yeah. And I was like, that is so cool. If, if my father were a military man, I would definitely carry the knife that's made out of the uniform that my dad carried. Incredible. So he's, a, he's an amazing craftsman, and if you guys have never seen Half-Face Blades before, you should go on the website, check it out. And you're going to be floored. Uh, and they also make an appearance in the books. So. <laughs> they do. Yeah, I like to put uh, knives in there. One that I use, uh, and then if it's a it's veteran owned or have a connection to a friend of mine, you know, all the all the better. So um, yeah, I need to get the whole, I need to get the fillet knife from uh, from Andy. He's building me a tomahawk right now, which is awesome. pretty cool. Uh, but uh, yeah, I have plenty of his. I have a lot of a lot of his blades, and uh, he does make some incredible stuff. But he's a he's like an artist. Mm -hmm. He's a he's a, an artistic genius when it comes to blades. Uh, and such a cool dude so um yeah those those are in the book as well now we were talking before the podcast started uh we both kind of not really admitted but we admitted that we're kind of gear geeks um and do you remember your first knife my first knife so I'm, I think, I'm thinking of a knife, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to remember if it's actually the first knife or not. Um, and I still have it, and it's a uh, Boy Scout knife. 
that was given to me by um, my mom from my uncle. Uh, so I th- I'm trying to think if there was one. I've been such a blade person my whole life. Mm-hmm. I always naturally gravitated towards them. So I'm trying to think if that was the first one. And I think it is. I think that was it. And then many followed. I'm trying to remember yeah. if it was that or a Swiss Army knife. And I remember my mom carrying a Swiss Army knife in her purse growing up. And it was the the big one back then. It's the, now they have a huge one. So, But it was still, I forget what they, they called Swiss it. Swiss champ. But uh, the champ. There it is. Yeah, there that, it is. So, But it wasn't the one that had, like today it has a uh, has a, like a light on it. It has like all these things in it. So back in the day, the one she got in the 70s was like half the size of the big one today, I think. But uh, I remember that. She always had that on her. And we used it all the time. And even she carried on planes you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know now you never mentioned in the book was reese a boy scout like in your, in your mind like if if it were ever to come out like mm, would... that's a good question and i don't think so because um i went on i was a cub scout and then i went on one boy scout outing so growing up i my whatever reason i went back well my parents uh took me into the backcountry and I was always into what gear I was going to take. For, it's mm-hmm. just natural. I don't know why, but first we had external flame frame Kelty packs, you know, and then we found these things in the late eighties called Dana designs oh, yeah. and like, Oh, an internal frame pack. What's that? And then at first some people were like, just like anything new. Oh no, you know, you can't, they don't want that. It's not going to carry the weight or whatever. Mm-hmm. And of course now, now look at, at what internal frames uh, do. But, um, so, so I was always, um, going into the backcountry with my parents, rock climbing, mountaineering, that sort of thing. And so I went on my first Boy Scout venture and we had these like canvas packs with huge pots hanging off the side, banging around everywhere. And it was like, everybody was a disaster. And I was looking around like, oh my goodness, like this is, it. I don't know. That was just more, I don't know. So that was my experience. That was my one and only mm-hmm. uh, Boy Scout uh, venture. And then I went back to my own rock climbing and backpacking and mountaineering. Um, but uh, uh, so I grew up in it. So it wasn't like the one place I was going to get my outdoor experience. I already had my outdoor experience. I was already living that outdoor experience. Um, so the Boy Scouts were just like, oh, a throwback to gear from 20, 30 years prior. Uh, and I was into what was coming out just now. What's lighter, what's faster. Patagonia was, uh, was out already, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, layering, people were talking about layering, uh, as opposed the first to the one jacket, exactly. like the giant, the giant yeah. mountain park. Yeah. People right. were talking about, Oh, you don't use cotton, you know, the boy scouts, everything was cotton. Like, mm-hmm. uh, so, so anyways, that was my, so was, is James Reese a boy scout? I don't think so because that wasn't my experience. Okay. Uh, but, but you did talk about one experience and it's funny cause the survival community is really small. You learned from one of the OGs in the survival community. I did. It's so crazy that I didn't even say the name and you said it out loud at, just before I was going to say it. Cause, cause I don't know the time frame maybe you're in mm-hmm. your head, you, you knew. And, uh, yeah, so I signed up for a survival course at a camp that I went to growing up and it was taught by Vietnam special forces guy. And I was already on that path. I knew what I was going to do from a very early age. So at age seven, I found out what seals were and I was on that special operations path. I was already studying warfare and terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. And, you know, growing up at that time, uh, the Iranian hostage crisis was a very formative time, mm-hmm. um, seeing pictures of Americans in Iran, uh, you know, blindfolded. Um, and I'm wondering why, why aren't we going to get these guys out? Why do we have our citizens taken our hostage in Iran? I was in first grade and, uh, we went to, uh, in school, I was at a Catholic school at the time. We went to, I remember going to, to pray and all that stuff. Um, and we did that. It was a big, it was a big deal. And then desert one happens of course. And, um, then, you know, they're, then they're released, but, um, they're captive, you know, for years 
uh, over a year. And uh, so it was a very formative time for me. So I'm seeing those pictures on the cover of, the, of newspapers, uh, other events then happened throughout the 80s, CDBA, TBA hijackings um, on all these things on the cover of Newsweek or Time or whatever else. So my first special forces guy I ever met was Mountain Mel. Wow. If Mountain Mel were around today and as vocal as he is, as he was, uh, he would definitely be canceled. Uh, he was unapologetic, but that's how survival information should be presented. Um, you know, I think it's important that you just get the skill out there, the hard skill, and let a person figure out, okay, well, sure, you just taught me how to hunt, fish, trap, whatever it may be. Um, I may or may not go down that path. You know, let, let them decide how they feel about, you know, taking lives and whatnot. But uh, he was... I mean, as hardcore as, as it came, uh, he was featured in American Survival Guide. I got to pull out that article. I want to check it out. I want to check it out. Because the interview, he he's, again, very, very to the point. I mean, again, people today would, would, would melt. They'd be snowflakes or whatever you want to call them if they could hear the way that he just spoke. So we'll, he was awesome. Yes. I was nine or 10 years old when I did his, uh, uh, course at this camp. So it was, it was two weeks and uh it was it was awesome i remember to this day i got there early i run to that course i still remember i can picture exactly where it was held in this little area in the, the redwoods and i and i'd be the last one to leave i just i just wanted to get a little bit more information from him just listening to he might drop another little knowledge bomb here and i remember all that I, he taught me how to make uh we had we had matches uh, mm-hmm. i didn't make a fire uh with uh with bow and drill till till later but uh, i remember making a fire with, with one match you know, and he yeah, taught, one he, stick fire. He taught me how to how to do it, yeah. um, and I remember the first time it didn't work. I think I was like, "Oh, of course, you just light it, and then you it works just like in, at home with the fireplace, uh, with the newspaper crumpled up under the logs." Well, no, it doesn't work that didn't work that way. But uh, yeah, he taught me taught me a lot. It was a, it was a very formative time for me. Yeah, that one stick fire. Everyone underestimates how difficult that is because they want to go right to fire, right? They, they're like, I've got a match. It's just going to light. And they don't take the time to process the wood down. We've, we've done that in our modern survival class and we've had students, you know, maybe not use a lighter, but we'll say, okay, you're going to get one piece of tinder and you got to get this thing going for five minutes. And people assume that it's just going to be easy. And it's like, if you have the extra time, take that time and front load it, get everything prepared just right. And then get your fire going. Um, you know, that used to be an old main uh, guides Association test. Uh, they would nice. give you an axe, a round of wood, and one strike anywhere match. And they would say, you're going to make a fire with this with this one match, the axe, and the round of wood. And what they wanted you to do is exactly what you did, but on a smaller scale with probably with, with the one stick. And that was, you know, split the wood, shave the wood, yep. and then you know, build the fire from there. Oh, that's very cool. So I'm a member of this, um, this club that doesn't like to be, be mentioned, but it's a, uh, it's an old school in the 1800s and they do this competition. It's not really a competition, I guess, but anyway, it's a series of events that they do every year. It's an old hunting club, um, and has some really, some names from, uh, early American history that were members of it. It's incredible to be a part of it, but, uh, but they have that, this thing that part of that competition is, uh, is making a fire like that. Mm-hmm. You start with just a, a block of wood and uh, a stump and you have your axe and you have, I think it's three matches. I haven't done it because of COVID. I didn't do it um, this last year. I think it's three matches you get, but there's a time limit and all the old guys are, are hanging out around watching you, heckling you mm-hmm. the whole time. They've been doing this for, you know, like there's some of these guys are in their eighties, yeah, some they, guys maybe early nineties. Yeah. They get to sit around, you're running around doing all the stuff and they're, they're just there to kind of, everybody's yelling a different thing to you. Kind of, you're telling you how to do it. And you got to just block it all out and do it. And so it's really cool. Axe, three matches, make it, and then you have to cook something also. So one of them is make a fire. And then the next one, you have to actually uh, cook something mm-hmm. and then they would judge 
judges that make sure that it's actually cooked and you made your time limit. It's kind of it's kind of cool. It's a good good skill to have. Yeah, and that's that's an experience. I mean, I think it's something that people should should try. We always say like experience it uh, on your own terms before you're forced to experience it. You know, and and I and I think that's something that's that's lost on this generation. Um, now, speaking of experiences, tying in your book, you know, because I know a lot of the listeners are definitely fans of your book. Oh, you. In the uh, True Believer, there's a period of time where the protagonist is in Africa. Now, you spent some time in Africa. I spent a little time in Africa, and I, I'm, I always tell people if you can get a chance to hunt there, you should because number one, your chance of success is much greater than anywhere in the United States. Number two, the culture is just awesome. Uh, what was your experience in Africa that kind of tempered like the character's actions in, in that book? Yeah, so I went to Africa before I'd even submitted the first book to Simon & Schuster. So I had no publishing deal, uh, just left the military, but I always knew I was going to write at least two books, mm -hmm. uh, whether they were published or not. Uh, and that's because John Grisham wrote his first book, uh, Time to Kill, and he couldn't give that thing away. Uh, then he writes The Firm. And that takes off. Tom Cruise is in the movie. And we've had a John Grisham book every year since. So he's on book 40-something right wow. now. And always at the top of New York Times bestseller list. And But if he had been like, oh, no one likes this first book of mine. I'm just, I'm, I guess I wasn't made to be a writer. I'm going to go back to law. Well, he'd probably still be practicing law. He might just be retiring now. Who knows? Um, but he'd be doing something he didn't really want to do. He wanted to write. Mm -hmm. uh, so he gave it another shot. And so I was always like, okay. If this first one doesn't sell, I'm for sure doing a second because of that example. And if the second one doesn't sell, then uh, maybe I'll rethink my uh, my, my choices here. But uh, uh, so I already had planned to go to Africa. I submitted the first book right when I got back, actually. But I was going to do the research uh, because I wanted to put boots on the ground. And the first one in the terminal list, I'd already been to Iraq, I've been to Afghanistan, I've been to these different places, uh, and I could incorporate those experiences into that first novel, really the emotions and the feelings behind a lot of them, but then a couple of real experiences that I morphed and fictionalized uh, a little bit for, for the narrative. But uh, I hadn't been to Mozambique, and that's where James Reese was gonna end up. And that's where he was gonna find his next mission in life, his next purpose in life, he's gonna learn to live again. And uh, so I went and put boots on the ground. And I had a, a list of things that I wanted to, uh, to learn, to ask about, uh, different phrases in the, and there were, I wasn't prepared for how many languages they speak in Mozambique. Uh, so there's all these different dialects and all sorts of stuff. So anyway, I have about, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 different pages of different dialects written out uh, so I can incorporate some of that stuff. And I used a little bit of that here and there. And I had a couple questions I wanted to ask, but I didn't even, once I got on the ground, mm -hmm. then I, I learned so much more than I would have if I'd just written down those questions or just got on the phone with someone who had recently been to Mozambique, asked them those questions, totally different experience to go boots on the ground, to actually hunt a Cape Buffalo, hunt planes game over there, to just see the dirt, uh, just learn about, uh, learn about recently the, uh, the lion had been banned from hunting over there. So what do the people do over there? They kill all the lions, um, which is uh, people here in the United States think they saved the lions right. by banning, importing them. Well, now they have no value over there. So I saw pictures of these lions that were just poisoned, moms, babies, because now they're actually a threat to livestock. And that's the way now they're going to make more of their money because they can't have hunters coming in from the mm -hmm. United States uh, and, and bringing those back. So really people that, uh, and I got to see it firsthand. I mean, people that uh, thought they were saving lions by banning that hunt, well, they killed a lot of lions in that point by not understanding really how it works. Yeah, Africa is, is incredibly beautiful. It's, it's a, a continent that is so misunderstood. 
I mean, the people think when you go over to Africa, you can only trophy hunt, but there are management hunts where the food actually goes to the local villages. And a lot of people don't realize what we would normally leave in a gut pile in the field. They use it all. They use it all. It's and amazing. they're drying it out on, on fences. We think like, we use all the elk. We think we use all no the white right, tail. Right. And then you go over there and see what they do. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. I guess I'm not really be, you know using everything yeah. I possibly could. And, and I mean, the stuff is, it's got flies on it. And you talk to the professional hunters, uh, the PHs, and they, they'll tell you, oh yeah, when they bring that home they they're essentially like heralded like a hero to, to the village to bring all that stuff back um and you know africa there, there's so many opportunities for for so much fun over there adventure it still feels like the wild west uh when you're over there because i mean from the minute you land with aggressive porters that aren't the <laughs> official porters but they're trying to take your stuff and they're like i'll take it to your next gate and it's like you're not wearing the vest and you, you hate to tell them to f off but like, if you guys don't know, South Africans might have uh, a monopoly on the best cursing in the entire world. I've never met people that can curse as, as good as South Africans, maybe Australians, but. Uh, yeah. No, I know what you mean by the gate. I have a guy now that meets me over there. Uh, and most, a lot of guys that have been through will know Mr. X and uh, he's awesome. He meets you there and he's just, he's been incredible. I think every trip, um, uh, and he's texts me, he texts me over there. We, we talk every now and again on text and he's just a, just a great guy. But, um, but yeah, Mozambique in particular felt a little wild westy because you go and you, uh, you land in, in South Africa and then you head into to Mozambique from there. And then, uh, once you get into to Moz, Mozambique and to Pemba, then you fly into, to where we were. And, and so for me, I'm taking pictures of the aircraft and I'm using mm-hmm. that. So all these little things that I wouldn't have known otherwise, I get to incorporate into the novel. Uh, and it's a, it's a very, I mean, it's an interesting place and uh, for, for hunters, you get so much experience by going to Africa because here you'll get, you know, you get your one elk a year or you get your one, I mean, even just a tag, you might not even, right. you know, you might not even bring one back. Um, you know, you get maybe a white tail too, whatever, whatever it is. Well, over there you're getting like 10 um, seasons of mm-hmm. U.S. hunting in one trip and you're learning so much from someone whose only job in life is to be a professional hunter and then the trackers that go along with that. So um, you're learning so much about tracking, you're learning so much about hunting um, and you're packing it into 10 days, two weeks, uh, whatever it, it may be. So it's a really, really cool experience. Yeah, your description of the rifle that was handed to Reese where you said it was carried so much and the bluing was pretty much all uh-huh. gone. I saw rifles like that over there. Like it, it's, I don't think if, if you haven't had that experience, I don't think people will understand how authentic it is when you write about it. It's, it's so true. Um, and you know, I think that's another thing that, uh, a lot of people appreciate about your books is that it's so detail driven. Um, I mean, everything from the choice of ammo that the character uses when you're like, Oh, he loves the 77 grand OTM. I'm like, <laughs> I love that round. That round is badass. Yeah. Um, it's cause I, yeah, I used the 77 grain down range. So it uh, made sense to, to put it in the novel. So all those things are, are, uh, it, it's very natural for me to incorporate them in because what someone uses, what they're carrying, how they carry it all tells a story. Uh, you know, I can see when I walked in here, I saw the different knives people had clipped to their pockets, you know, all that stuff, you know, tells me something about it, what watch they have on their wrist. Like all these things tell me a little bit about the person. Um, so, so I incorporate that into my, not, it would be strange not to, it would right. say it would be strange to just to say like, he, he he pulled out his gun or uh you know he reached for his rifle or he uh you know, looked at his watch you know well, right what kind right. of watch why is he what is he wearing is it, is it a digital watch is it a new like garmin thing is it uh is it old school what does that tell me about the person so so all of that stuff tells me a story yeah and in 
I know that you're a fan of Hemingway, and I like the way that when you describe, like, he, he sat into the cool seat of his car. Like, it's not just the physical motion, but it's the, the sensation. Uh, it's very, very well written, and, and I appreciate that from, like, the writer's craft perspective. Um, speaking of, of your character, now, we were talking about this downstairs, doing a little walkthrough. Uh, Reese has some, you know, uh, you know little quirks about him, um, and I don't know... <laughs> If you're a fan, I know a lot of readers or listeners might be a fan, but uh, I, I go whenever I watch a good movie, I go on IMDb and I want to read the trivia, right? So let's talk about a couple things about character Reese. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let's try, try to figure out where this came from. Uh, mayonnaise. He does not like mayonnaise. I know a lot Ugh. of people don't. Uh, what's that all about? Ugh. Yeah, my mom used to put mayonnaise on our sandwiches as kids. And and for whatever reason, she just put so much on. And so it, uh, it scarred. I think all of us for life, um, but uh, me in particular, like I just can't stand mayo. Uh, so I think my mom stopped making my sandwiches maybe in uh, let's say seventh or eighth grade. You know, she's been up until that point. Um, but man, there was always so much mayo on there. So trying to humanize the character, you know, rather than just having someone who has a skill set, and uh, that's all that I talk about is how good he is with a rifle, how good he is on the jujitsu mats, how good he was a blade, and why that sort of thing. He likes his coffee black. You know, typically um, in these in this genre, that's kind of what you what you get. Um, but you know, I have experience actually doing these things, mm-hmm. and. And, uh, and all of us in special operations are human. Um, we all have idiosyncrasies. We all have things we like and dislike, things we're good at, things we're bad at. So it was very important for me to have a likable character. And that meant that he had to be relatable to the reader. And so I just think it was natural for me to incorporate some of my likes and dislikes in there. So male, ugh, he's not a fan. And then uh, coffee, he likes it with honey and cream, which is how I like mine. Uh, so uh, so I think the little things like that just kind of humanize the character a little bit, make him a little more relatable, just like uh, like Magnum. You talked about 80s in the, in the beginning. Right. So Magnum was a very uh, influential show for me growing up. But uh, I think why it was so successful is because he was likable. It wasn't just because he drove a Ferrari he lived in the guest house and he's in Hawaii, you know, you could have all those things and have someone be a, a character that was just not likable and people would flip the channel because you're spending an hour of your night with this person. Um, so instead, a likable character, he could be funny, he could be goofy. There was things he was good at, things he was not good at, uh, but then he could flip the switch. And in one of those episodes, he's the first, the first primetime show where the protagonist shoots an unarmed person. Uh, and and he does, and it was the best episode of Magnum yet. Did you see the sunrise this morning? Did you see the sunrise? Yeah, right. did you see the sunrise? And uh, just an amazing, just a great episode. He's, it's been fantastic. So that's what I wanted for my character. It was so influential to me uh, that I wanted a character like that too, that was relatable, that was human, but could flip that switch mm-hmm. and get the job done. So that's uh, that's James Reese. And he, and he likes Land Cruisers, which he pulled does. up in. I did, I did. I drove the Land Cruiser over today, and uh, that comes from, well, I, I liked him from the movie Revenge with uh, with Kevin Costner, which is mm-hmm. based on a novella by Jim Harrison. Back, uh, but uh, the movie Revenge came out, gosh, like late 88, 88 I want to say, ish, 87, 88, I think. But uh, he has this green Land Cruiser FJ40, and I was like, oh, man, what is this thing? I think it's awesome. I really hadn't seen one uh, in, a, in a movie before, or I don't even think I'd even seen one in real life up at that point. And uh, it was just so unique and so cool. And then I started noticing them, of course, all over the place. And uh, then I went to Afghanistan. Uh, well, not, not, not the next day, but, you know, decade plus later, uh, go to Afghanistan, and I see all the Hiluxes that we're using over there. And I see Hiluxes that, uh, that other people are using over there. And I see Land Cruisers 
over there. But uh, I see in particular the Hiluxes that we were using and how we were outfitting them and retrofitting them. We have the mechanics cranking on them. We're putting in steel plates for IEDs and that sort of thing. Um, but I just saw the beating that those things could take and how they could maneuver on what we wouldn't consider a road in the United mm-hmm. States uh, and just what they could what they could take. So I got home from that and I was like, oh man, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Toyota person now. I just saw what those things could do. And, uh, and I, I, these Land Cruisers are awesome, particularly the ones from the 80s because I like stuff from the 80s. So uh, I went, got an 80, uh, 1988 FJ62 and that's the one that's uh, right outside. Although this one has a couple modifications to it now. So <laughs> yeah. this one may be a little faster. Which, which yeah. is going to be shown in a, in a vehicle walkthrough, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be a few things that we're not going to talk about in that but uh yeah we, it was funny be- before we started this podcast and we were when jack first got here this morning you know i'm sitting down we're talking about the 80s and, and kevin owens is screaming from the background save it for the podcast save it for the podcast <laughs> and we were talking about all sorts of stuff like you know red dawn and, and rambo first blood part two and you know how at one point rambo first blood part two actually spawned a toy collection right like uh, where rambo was a cartoon character sunday saturday morning cartoons and he was like saving the environment and doing all this stuff and, and kind of like the old A team, like no one ever died, like so thousands fantastic. of rounds of yeah. ammo shot from a mini 14 and no uh-huh. one gets hit. Uh, that's kind of how Rambo the cartoon was. So yeah, you I mean, any... skiing, skiing with no shirt on. It you know, was, you so, don't do that? It was great. It was so fantastic. But yeah, we were talking about that in terms of, uh, you know, of, of movie rights. And back in the day, uh, when David Morrell wrote, published First Blood in 1972, uh, which was the public's first introduction to Rambo, Without the name John, by the way, Hollywood gave mm-hmm. him the name John. Um, but uh, it, he thought, well, why would I want rights to these toys and games and things? He's like, this is about a guy, you know, essentially with uh, post-traumatic stress that comes back. And, and the book is very different. If, if people have not oh, read yeah. the book, First Blood, uh, it's very different. Uh, three essential main characters in there rather than uh, just one that the, uh, the series um, concentrates on. But anyway, it's a fascinating book. It moved the genre forward. There's certain landmark novels that move the genre forward and uh, and that was one of them but uh so he got those rights because who's gonna want who's gonna you know make a lunchbox with this guy and the book the ending of the book i won't tell you but uh once you read it it'll make sense to you was why he thought there would never be a lunchbox or a video game or whatever else so he got those rights so they've closed that loophole though after that after they, yeah. they saw that they closed that uh that loophole for authors really but uh but yeah it, Fascinating. We talked also this morning about uh, Last of the Breed. And, oh, uh, yeah. That's what I wanted to get to. And Yeah. So, I mean, Rambo First Blood Part Two comes out in yep. 1985. Uh, I think I read Last of the Breed by Louis L'Amour in... 86 or 87 I want to say but uh, there's some some bow action there's some survival action uh, well in both those those uh, mm-hmm. separate and distinct projects and I wish we were talking about this morning I wish that they were, had they had made back then a last of the breed movie I would have been I, I'm still awesome. holding out that they will I just I don't want them to screw it up I know uh, I want to see the scene in last of the breed where he crosses the glacier field or the ice field and cracks off the round and I don't want to say what happens but if you're following the Utah news right now about Mm -hmm. all of the the warnings that are out there for canyon passes you'll kind of get an idea of what I'm getting at but that book is my so my mentor Marty Simon uh, he said it was the best survival book that was ever written and the the premise of that book is you have a Native American who gets who's a uh, he was the Air Force pilot. Air Force, yep. Uh, Air Stealth pilot. Yep. And he is and they didn't even admit it to the stealth technology back then. Mm -hmm. So well, it was what was super the name cool. of that project back in the day? Was it Pav Blue or something like that? I don't that? know. Like, yeah, they had some they had some name for the early early bomber, but uh, yeah, he gets shot down over Siberia. He gets taken to the Gulag and he escapes. 
and uh, and he lives off the land, and he's being hunted by a lekin. And yes. oh man, it's it's such a good book. Um, I read it when I was in Alaska in 2016. I was in a tent, and I was like, "This is what I'm reading when we can't move forward, and we're just we're we're kind of sheltered in place because of all the snow." I was like, "I'm reading this book," and when as soon as I got done reading it, I was like, "I got to read it again." It was that good. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you'll notice then in the Devil's Hand, uh-huh. my next one coming out, I give a nod to it. Most people won't recognize it, but I know you will okay. recognize the nod okay. in uh, The Devil's Hand, which comes out in April. So now you've got the book coming out in April yep. and you have the show coming out with Chris Pratt that is directed by Antoine Fuqua. Yep. Um, now, I know that you said today that uh, you know it's in development and whatnot. Yeah, it's and classified exactly when they're starting to film and when, right, when it's right. coming out. I'm not, not <laughs> saying a word, not saying a word. Um, if you had your way um, and I don't know if you even want to comment on this, but who would you want to see as Rafe? Who would you want to see as Katie? Like, do you have any characters? Like, if you in a perfect mm-hmm. world, unlimited budget, who would be those characters? Yep. So uh, Chris Pratt was the person that I always envisioned playing the role of James Reese, uh, and that was as I was writing the first book while I was still in the military. And it's a strange pick for back then because he hadn't done Avengers, hadn't done Jurassic Park, hadn't done Guardians of the Galaxy. He was you know, Andy on Parks and Rec, and mm-hmm. he had a very small role in Zero Dark Thirty. And I think I read an article where it kind of hinted that he he uh, that we kind of think along the same lines, and uh, that he's a good, nice guy. And uh, so I'm like, this is the guy. This is this generation's Tom Hanks, who in the 80s did all comedy. And then he took a risk with Philadelphia in the early 90s. And he's been able to write his own ticket ever since. Right. So I thought, who's that guy? You know, Because usually you'd think somebody playing your protagonist, someone who had done this before, like, oh, Mark Wahlberg would be great. Or you know, these people that have done some roles like that before, some of those tough guy type roles. And uh, I thought, no, I need somebody who hasn't done that yet and Chris Pratt is the guy Um, but then I didn't know there was a connection to him and then I got a call out of the blue before the book even came out from an old buddy from the SEAL teams I hadn't talked to in years and he said hey uh, do you remember me and I was like yeah of course Jared how are you buddy and he said he always wanted to he said I always want to thank you for what you did for me in the SEAL teams and I couldn't really remember what that was but he reminded me he said hey you sat me down uh, you helped me with transition you introduced me to people in the private sector nobody else did that for me I always want to say thank you. And I was like, of course, man, no problem. How's it going? And, uh, and he said, well, uh, I, I heard you wrote a book. And I said, yeah, it's coming out in a few months. I have this galley copy thing, which is an advanced reader edition I can send you. And, and he said, yeah, but I'd like to give one to a friend of mine if that's cool. And I said, absolutely. Who is it? And he said, Chris Pratt. So Chris Pratt reads it on December 28th of 2017, and the next week is calling to option it. So that's pretty cool. And then Antoine Fuqua directing it. He's the only person I ever wanted to direct it. He got uh, the Oscar for uh, Training Day with Denzel Washington. He did Tears of the Sun, Magnificent Seven, Equalizer, Shooter, um, just amazing guy. And so he's directing the first, what is now a first episode. Now that, that it's not a movie, it's an eight-part episode, uh, eight-part series coming out for Amazon. And, uh, and so for the other characters, you know, I didn't, I was not attached to any particular um, actors, actresses for the other parts. Um, and now that, that now that there's discussions going on um, with uh, to get those those parts cast, uh, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't really attached to anybody. Yeah. I think the casting those. agent should probably take a look at the comments that are going to be at the bottom of this podcast. Uh, who 
the listeners would like to see as those those characters. Nice. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so uh, yeah, James Reese's wife, uh, and then Katie, the reporter, the journalist, uh, Rafe Hastings. Uh, so yeah, the people people have been telling me in comments on on Instagram and and the social channels who they want to see as these different characters. So um, so we'll see. I think they're refining it right now, yeah. which is which is uh, is interesting because what I, I keep thinking like, hey, what if you know, it's going to start filming here pretty soon. I'm like, what if they choose someone that just has done some role where they had to put on like 300 pounds and now they got to like shed that in a couple of weeks right, or something. Right. Christian so, Bale. Something, yeah, exactly. He's good <laughs> at that. So I remember De Niro doing it, Raging Bull, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day. I think he's one of the first people to, you know, to really do that. Yeah, even Stallone in Copland. He yeah, gained he gained all that, all that, that weight. Was, that was not a fat suit. That was just straight up fat. Yeah, and yeah. And he dropped it again. That was a good movie. A little beast. Yeah. yeah. He is a beast. He's he's awesome. I, I have, you know, I would love to meet him because uh, you know I grew up with him with mm-hmm. Rocky and Rambo. That's right. And and, and I think and those those series of films I think are good films for kids to watch because it's you know, about overcoming overcoming obstacles. You know, never giving up, getting back up, moving forward if you're knocked down, like all those things. Um, and watching that Rocky movie with my parents back in the late seventies on a, uh, on a not even a laser disc. It was like a video, a movie that was played like a record player, so it mm-hmm. would skip every now and again. So yeah. it wasn't even an actual laser that was reading this thing it was like a needle that read this thing and it was before Betamax and so that's why I saw Rocky for the first time and you know you want to you see that movie as a kid and you want to get out there and you want to do pull-ups and you do sit-ups you want to run in the snow and you want to do all that stuff well that's yeah, yeah Rocky 4 Rocky comes 4. out yeah then Rocky 4 comes out you know in 85 also um and uh and yeah you see all that going on I think those are those are like those are good things for kids to see and to want to emulate yeah, and I don't think there's anything wrong with the the image of like the strong male in the in the '80s. Everyone's like, "Oh my God!" But where are the strong females? It's like there's strong females out there too. Like they can have their space. We can have ours. Like we don't have to necessarily always be exactly the same. It's okay to be different, um, and it's not a competition. I think more of like the whole male female thing. Like we're complementary to one another, uh, you know. And it, it, the we're talking about Rocky. Anytime that we talk about it, I always think like John Cafferty, "Hearts on Fire." Like oh, that. so great. So great. Like that's the soundtrack. Uh, soundtrack to my life. Soundtrack to my life right there. Like I, I want to I wanna drive fast through a tunnel in a, in a, in a Lamborghini listening <laughs> to uh, you know, No Easy Way Out. Having flashbacks. Yeah. Oh, man, it's so good. I know. It's, he's doing a director's cut right now. He's doing a new with director's all new cut. Footage, right? Yeah, with new footage or new yeah. edits at least or something. Um, but it's so good anyway. So I always get kind of I don't know concerned about those sorts of things. Like when there's a director's cut, I always wonder like, hey, well, it, you know, why was this stuff taken out initially? You know, I, so I always, I'm very curious. I'm very, I'm, I'm interested to see what they come up with for this, but the first one is just so good. It's hard to, to imagine that they could uh, make it that much better with the director's cut, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, Stallone was actually interviewed one time and he said that he felt the best physically, like from a, like a, like mobility strength and whatnot. He said he felt the best in either cliffhanger, uh, Rocky, uh, Rocky four or, um, uh, Cliffhanger, Rocky Four, or Rambo Three. Oh, really? He said that that's when he felt he was, like he was yoked at, in Rambo Three. Like, Rambo, Rambo Three is the biggest. Oh I my think. god! I want to think he's the biggest he was ever in a film in Rocky Three. Or sorry, in Rambo Three. Yeah, that's that's my monster. guess anyway. Um, Leave yeah. the comments below if I'm not correct. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so one thing I want to I want to talk about because I want to get back to the book, um, and, and I'm going to say it before I forget about it. Chris Pratt when he was in Jurassic World was it? I think it was Jurassic World where he carried the 1895 Marlin. Do you know that in the Marlin catalog, the Marlin Firearms catalog, it now says suitable game. It says deer, moose, 
T-Rex. Fantastic. Yeah. So I wonder if there's going to be something like that eventually with, you know, Jack Carr, you know, like Jack Carr approved, you know, something like that. If some company is going to, you know, reach out to you and say, hey, Jack Carr carries that. I want to put that in the book or put that in the catalog. I don't know. That's just my, my mind going off on a rant. I've had a lot of Black Rifle coffee today. Nice. Um, no, I love it. Yeah, no, there's all, I mean, I've been a, like a gear guy, like I said, my whole life. And then in the SEAL teams, I got to take it to a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. I was going to SHOT Show before when the tactical room in the SHOT Show was like the size of someone's living room and everything else was hunting and fishing. And then I got to see that over the years evolve into what it is today, which is all pretty much all, everything's tactical today. Everything's uh, a Black at the Rifle. Shot, yeah, at the at SHOT Show. Uh, but it was cool to see that evolution of, of the industry. So, and just buy, going to that show, uh, going to Dallas Safari Club, going to Safari Club International, all these things, um, and just being being into these different communities and cultures, gun culture, knife culture, survival culture, all these different things. I just got to know a lot of people naturally. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of companies have reached out asking to do certain things here and there, being an ambassador for this or that. And, and you know, I said no thus far. I'm just kind of taking a breath and, you know, doing my doing my thing, building out the, the, the readership, making the books as good as they can possibly be, working on these scripts, that sort of thing, but uh, but I'm sure I'll do at some point do some some other work with some of these other companies that I just know naturally. Nothing that's exclusive, you know. So it's right, uh, right. So it's important to me that it all comes off natural, and I can't like be tied into just one different product when I like trying out all different right. sorts of things and I use different things depending on what I'm what I'm doing. And um, so so I want to keep it very very natural, and authentic, and and real, and uh, just like I do I do in the books. And that and that's something that's really important, I think to talk about with like writer's craft, you actually are going out there, you're experiencing it. It's not theoretical. Like you're getting, you're, you're, whether from it's your military experience, hunting experience, just life experiences, uh, you're able to intertwine that into the book. I'm sure there are a lot of people who want to know like, hey, if I'm a brand new writer, how do I break into writing? Like, do you have any advice for someone who's like, I love books, I love reading, I want to write, I don't know where to start. So yeah. What do you What do you think? Yeah. So the joke is, uh, especially in my post this morning, somebody made uh, the comment because I, I posted an old picture of my first platoon, and I I said, yeah, this is the part of the pre-deployment workup where uh, they take your headshots for future book covers and uh, and speaking engagements. Um, so the joke is, yeah, first go to buds. Uh, no, and that is not true. You do not need to go to buds. Very few people that are actual that are writers that write fiction <laughs> have gone to buds. Um, so the. I, the most important advice that one can give anyone, and it's regardless, it's not just writing, it's anything in life, mm-hmm. um, is, and I'll relate it to writing here though, and I didn't make this up, someone passed it to me, someone passed it to the person that passed it to me, so I don't know where it actually originated, but um, it's the only difference between a published author and an unpublished author is that the published author never quit. And that's true of everything in life. I mean, look, we were talking about Stallone earlier. So how many times did he get turned down for Rocky? How many times did he get offered something for Rocky, but Hey, you can't direct or you can't star. And he said, no, like all these things, all these, no, 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 no. Um, like you're going to get told no. And you're going to, then you're going to get knocked down. Um, and it's going to, you're going to get knocked down hard and then you have to get back up and keep moving forward and not quit no matter what it is. So, so that's the most important part. Um, Persistence. That, that's it. Right. And then if we're talking specific to writing, um, I can only speak from, from my experience. So, um, I was a reader first and yeah, my mom was a librarian. I grew up surrounded by books and this love of reading. And I was reading all about military insurgencies, counterinsurgencies, terrorism, warfare growing up on the nonfiction side of the house. And this is really in the eighties and nineties, but uh, mostly in the eighties, that was my formative time growing up. But then also the books that I read had, 
that uh, on the fiction side of the house had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted in real life one day. So typically they were uh, SEALs or in Vietnam, they were Army Special Forces in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, they were CIA guys in Vietnam. That was the typical background of a protagonist in an 80s novel uh, in a political thriller. Um, so guys by, like books by guys by uh, Nelson DeMille, David Morrell, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, Tom Clancy. Um, all these guys had these protagonists. So I was devouring those and I loved it. And I knew that one day after my time in the military, then I would write. And I didn't realize at the time that I was giving myself an early education in the art of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I didn't look at it that way. I was just enjoying these novels. Uh, Louis L'Amour, Last of the Breed, like oh, if yeah. I can write a novel like this one day, you know, I was just, this is what I want to do after I'm out of the military. Like I knew it back then. Um, so being, I think it'd be very difficult had I just woken up one day as I'm getting out of the military and said, oh, you know what, I'm going to give it, or read one book thriller and said, oh, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. Like that's not how it was at all. I knew what I wanted to do from a very early age and that's not necessary, but it certainly helped in my case because uh, I had studied the genre, genre, uh, not from an academic perspective, but just from a reader's perspective, uh, the enjoyment, like knew what I liked, what I didn't like. And then my mom introduced me to Joseph Campbell's uh, Here with a Thousand Faces in 1988. And Joseph Campbell did a series of interviews with Bill Moyers called The Power of Myth. And they did a a book, I think a three book series on it, on that, that series of interviews. And and what he talked about is how these different cultures that has n- had never had any sort of interaction had a very similar mythology, a very similar hero's journey. So you have China, you have Native American Indians, you have Europe, you have Africa, and they have this very similar journey. Somebody, a reluctant hero, usually, goes on a journey. He meets someone along the way, someone older, a mentor, who gives him either a piece of knowledge or a tool. And then he's tested. Usually he goes into a cave at some point mm-hmm. too, emerges transformed. Um, he's tested. There's a crucible. And then he returns back from where he came and passes on that knowledge to the next generation. This is this started with an oral tradition of storytelling, uh, but then went over into the, to the written world, word after, you know, when that came along. So, uh, so I was introduced to that very early, and I think I applied that filter. I didn't mean to, but I applied that filter to things that I was watching, whether it was TV, movies, or novels, um, and identifying things that I liked, what I didn't, uh, things mm-hmm. that worked, things that didn't really work, things I would have done differently if I was the author, that sort of thing, and that was all part of a foundation that I was building. And then I got to add that academic study of warfare to that. And then my personal experience downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and that all came together at the right time and place as I was getting ready to get out of the military. Uh, and so all that stuff continues to be a part of my novels. So, um, so I know that's, that's, uh, that's, so that's just my experience. Right. Um, it's definitely not every author. I think everybody comes to it a different way but if just like anything in life you have to love it you have to be passionate so and that's really the the trick to anything is uh is figuring out your mission in life and your passion in life and come somehow combining those two and i think that's kind of if there's a if there's a trick to anything it's identifying those and then what's not the trick is getting down to do the work yeah and i think i read somewhere i might have heard you in an interview say that when you were deployed you did not get into like the gaming culture or movies you read books yeah Yep. So I was always, I always thought it was my responsibility as a, as a leader, uh, to be as prepared as I possibly could to make decisions down, downrange. Um, so I was always reading. So I never played video games, uh, rarely watched a movie and maybe once, um, in all those deployments. Um, but most of the time I would come back and I would read and I would just be studying the enemy, studying, uh, other, what, what other units had been in our area before that, what lessons that they passed on, uh, what about the culture, anything, anything that could possibly give me 
be an edge in making decisions, um, whether they're kind of operational decisions in the mission planning process or, or uh, tactical level decisions when the bullets are flying. Um, so I was just always, always reading, always studying warfare. And, uh, and it's interesting that I would, but also still keep reading these books by authors that I, that I really, mm-hmm. really enjoyed on the fiction side of the house because they're doing research into the areas that I'm in as well. So they're doing, if they're writing about Afghanistan in a fictional sense, well, they've done research on Afghanistan. Uh, a lot of times it's more readable than some of the academic stuff that, that you're reading on some of these places. Um, so I did a combination. I didn't read, you know, for, for the most part it was the nonfiction though, but I'd still read um, my Daniel Silva, uh, Vince Flynn, um, and, uh, and then Brad Thor when he came when he came along a little later. But uh, but yeah, all those guys are doing doing research as well. And they're giving little tidbits here and there that I can check to see if it's real, see if it's not. But uh, but I was always a reader my whole life, so that's it's a part of who I am. And, and I think that's something <clears throat> the next generation needs to hear, um, right? I mean, we live in an age right now where so many people are, are just living in their phones, and it's a different sensation to actually have a book that isn't reliant on technology to to provide words on page, you know. And you know, I I think. I think I heard one time you were talking about the book of five rings and certain it's in the book. Yeah. yeah cer- certain books that are timeless. Right. And it doesn't matter like much like your, your story of, you know, the, the different hero sagas from around the world, it follows a formula, um, which I think a lot of people don't realize, like that's essentially all the Marvel comic book characters, right? Like it's the, the, Bible. the origin stories, it's the Bible. Right. And, and there are these universal truths throughout cultures that we should be paying attention to. Um, and the more you read, it's like, if I were writing a research paper, I wouldn't just cite one book as my research. I'd want to say, look, here are five or six different examples that are all the same message. It's a truth, you know, at that point, because I've seen it so many different times. I think that's something that, that people need to identify and just start applying. Like whether you're learning survival skills, read multiple authors from a military background, a primitive background, a, um, you know, a traditional background, read, you know, if you're into, you know, martial arts, you, you know, look at the universals and in, in combatives, right? Force timing in space, look at all those things. And then that's, if you can live your life by those simple, simple formulas, then you'll find that you'll be able to get through pretty much any scenario. Um, we're running short on time. I, I think we're running short. Yeah, man. Yeah, we're running, we're awesome. running short on time. Damn it. Well, I need to come um, down and, and I need to hone my survival skills. It's been a little, been a little while. Um, yeah, I went to Boulder Outdoor Survival School before I even joined the Navy. I was always training myself up for this, uh, for what I was going to do later in life. But uh, I always want those skills to, uh, I can always hone those skills. I can always, they can certainly always be better. So I'm looking forward to, I'm glad you guys are here. It's so cool yeah. that you're just down the road here and we're going to do some work, build out some vehicles and uh, hopefully hone those survival kids, uh, skills. Hopefully get my kids down here. Um, but yeah, awesome. So glad you guys are here. Yeah, Great we might spot. tap into you as a, as a role player for a couple of the courses that we have coming up where we might do a few things to our students, which I don't want to give away just yet, but let's just say that no one else is doing what we are about to do. So awesome. we might tap into you for that one. So Love it. Uh, where can people find you? Um, that's yeah. A, yeah. So I am on the social channels and Jack Carr USA. Um, I'm uh, active on Instagram, but it's just one person. Like it repost, like there is a Facebook at Jack Carr USA, but there's just, I had to pick one and uh, Instagram was the one to, that I, that I decided to go with. So, um, so if you're just on Facebook, you'll see the reposts there, but uh, Instagram, Jack Carr USA, Twitter at Jack Carr USA, a uh, little bit different content for each because they're kind of different, uh, you know, different platforms um, and different audiences even. And then official Jack is the website. And I do some, you can sign up for my newsletter there and I do a reading list every 
month where I pick six. I have a fairly robust reading list. I was asked to put it together for the uh, <laughs> Naval Special Warfare Center before I retired. And uh, so I had all these books that I'd read, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies, terrorism, leadership, that sort of thing. And then I added to that uh, a lot of the books that I'd read, uh, have read growing up. And I talk about like where I was when I read them, how impactful they were to me, either as an author now or as a leader in the SEAL teams. Uh, so I pick six of those to highlight each month and you can find that on the, on the blog. And I do a little more of a deep dive into some of the gear and mm -hmm. weapons and tactics and stuff like that, that, uh, if people are interested in that, they can go into the blog and scroll through that and, and check that out. So, um, but yeah, that's, uh, I think that's, that's, that's where I am. And then, yeah, we'll see what happens with the uh, with the series. Excited to get going on that. I have a little cameo, which means I need to start start. Uh, it'll probably get edited out, you know, now that I've said it. But uh, but yeah, I need to start working out <laughs> just in case it doesn't get edited out. So now, and the book is coming out April April thirteenth. Thirteenth. Yep. Okay. April thirteenth. The Devil's Hand, and it's on. Uh, people always ask if it's going to be audio the same day. Yes, audio so, the same day, ebook the same day, hardcover the same day, and we'll do a little event here. We're going to do a little signing down here at Fieldcraft Survival, and uh, do a little talk, answer some questions, sign some books, and have a good time. Yeah, and if you guys, uh, if you're frequently in the car, get the book on audio. Um, I did a cross country trip. I listened to the book. I enjoyed it. Uh, every time I turned on my car, it was synced up to my phone, and I I heard Ray. Porter was yeah, his name. He's great. Phenomenal Fantastic. narrator. He does a South African accent perfectly. Like he gets all the lingo down just right. There's no mispronunciations. Definitely, definitely worthwhile. Um, and it's a great way to absorb it uh, when you're when you're driving. So. He's a great guy too. Such a such a good guy. And I didn't realize when I chose him that I didn't realize that he was uh, one of the top narrators out there in the space. And so he brought a whole fan base with him that I didn't even realize. And that first one was up for audiobook of the year. So we got to put on the tuxes and go to New York and see it up there next to Stephen King and all. It was, it was just incredible. And uh, yeah, Ray Porter is such a good human being. Just a really solid guy. Awesome. Well, hey guys, uh, like I said, we're running short on time. Jack, thanks for coming in. And, uh, you know, you guys can find us if you're not following us already on Instagram at Fieldcraft Survival. Uh, you can find us on our locals platform, uh, www.fieldcraftsurvival.locals.com. Uh, you can find me, Kevin Estella, at Estella Wild Ed. And uh, you can look for all the other guys, Mike, Austin, the other Kevin, George, all those guys on Instagram as well. So we're always here for you. Uh, guys, that's it. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.